I'm excited about getting a chance to look at numbers with you, and uh, that's what we're going to do uh, for the next little while, and uh, so that's uh, exciting, and uh, you know, hopefully it can be enlightening to us. Numbers probably has been one of my weakest Old Testament books. I've worked on it quite a bit recently, taught it some, and I've really enjoyed it. It's a really good book. It's uh, helpful to us, and uh, so, Tomas, you want to lead a prayer? I'll translate it for you. Lord, our beloved God, we are here first of all to thank you for your Son Jesus Christ, for his love and his grace. That thanks to him we have access to you and to your holy word and to the forgiveness of our sins. We are here also to thank you for this new opportunity that you're giving us to study your holy word and that we can be able to share, Father, some thoughts that we have and that we can encourage each other. Be with us in this hour, giving us uh, uh, blessing and wisdom. May you help us to maintain our focus on the study. And be with us throughout this day and throughout the camp, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you and we ask you. Amen. Amen. Okay. We are then in Numbers 1. Now, you know, what do you think about a book named Numbers? You know, kind of one of those books only a mathematician could love. You know, they have those books on the joy of cooking and the joy of photography and the joy of juicing even, but is there any book on the joy of accounting? Uh, so it doesn't sound on the surface like this is going to be a great book. But I'll tell you what. You like numbers, don't you? Well, not all numbers. How many of you like numbers associated with sports? You know, numbers of players, numbers of wins and losses, you know, scores, all kinds of ridiculous statistics and things like that. You like numbers if it's something you're into. Uh, how many of you like numbers associated with advertisements? You know, prices and sales and performance data. How many of you like numbers associated with technology? Do you know the numbers of the 5C and the whatever, I don't, 5S and, and uh, you know, the, the various computers and things like that? Uh, sometimes, if you're a little bit more uh, into uh, it, you like numbers associated with business, you know, stock market or whatever. So, we like numbers. We just got to like the subject that the number's in, and then the numbers are cool. That's the way it is in the book of numbers. It's a lot more than numbers anyway. But the numbers in the book of numbers are cool numbers if we get excited about what they're talking about. And so that's what we're going to try to do. The book starts out with this phrase, then the Lord spoke to Moses. That is the key phrase of the Pentateuch, uh, particularly of Exodus to Deuteronomy. About 150 times, in one way or another, in numbers, it says the Lord spoke to Moses about 100 times just that way. And uh, God, the God of the Scripture, the true God, is the God who speaks. <laughs> he communicates with us, and that is really helpful and exciting to us, because it means we need to listen, and it means that he is really looking for people who are willing to hear him. And uh, idol gods, you know, false gods, they don't ever speak. <laughs> they don't say anything. But our God has communicated with us. And uh, so he spoke to Moses and told him, in verse 2, to take a census of all the congregations of the sons of Israel. Now, think about when we're at. Do you know the context of the beginning of Numbers? What has just happened fairly recently? You're a little bit before. They just got out of Egypt. They just got out of Egypt. That's exactly right. They went through the Exodus. Remember uh, what they crossed over? The Red Sea. The Red Sea. 
And you remember where they first went, the first main place the Israelites went after they crossed the Red Sea? Sinai. Mount Sinai. And what happened there? Um, God gave Moses the commandments. You're exactly right. And all the different laws and the priesthood, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, and so forth, we're still on Mount Sinai when we start the book of Numbers. That's what we're dealing with. And he says to take a census of the people. So this would essentially be a census of the people who left Egypt. Now, do you remember anything about how the Israelites happened to get into Egypt? It was through Joseph. Through Joseph. Remember the famine? Remember the family moving down? Anybody remember about how many people moved down to Egypt? 70. About 70-ish. Yeah. And so it would be interesting to see how much the family has grown or shrunk in the time since they went down to Egypt. Now, does anybody know about how long it was that they spent in Egypt? 400 years? Yeah, about 400 years, maybe 430 to be exact, but a little more than 400 years. wonder how many people 70 can grow to in 400 years. I have no idea what a normal growth rate would do to 70 people over 400 years. But, this is not going to be a normal growth rate anyway, because do you remember anything God had said about uh, the number of the people? What did he say about the people? It was going to grow. It was going to multiply to the point of uh, the descendants of Abraham would be as many as the... Stars and the sand and the... There's a third figure he uses. The dust on the ground. There is quite a bit of dust. There's quite a lot of sand. And there's a whole bunch of stars. And uh, so that means God said they were going to multiply. Well, we'll see how that goes. So he asks them to number not everybody, mind you, but they were supposed to take a sense. You have to kind of scan down through as we're going through this. We're not going to read very much. This is 36 chapters in four days. I don't think we can read it all. But you kind of keep track of where we're at. Who does he tell, that, tell Moses to take a census of? What gender? Yeah, Luke. Male. The males of how old? 20 and up. Now, why only take a census of males 20 and over? All those who are able to go to war. War, yes. The ones who can be soldiers. Why do we need to have a census of potential soldiers? Because they're about to go and They're about to go to war against. Uh, who are they supposed to go to war against? Everyone lives in Canaan. The Canaanites, people who lived in Canaan because they were supposed to conquer the land. That was what we call the promised land. Remember what God described it was the land that was flowing with? Milk and honey. It was a land that God had promised Abraham that he was going to give to his descendants after the iniquity of the Amorites was full. <laughs> you know, when the sin of the Canaanites got to a certain point, then God was going to deliver it over to the Israelites. So this is going to be the soldiers. And potentially, this is going to be a list of the heroes. You know, this is kind of the preparatory step to going in and invading the land. So these are going to be the ones who are going to gain the victory and, and conquer the land of Canaan. And uh, so he actually gets one person, one like helper, from each tribe to help to conduct the census. And chapter 1 tells you the details of the census. And basically it tells you how many were in each tribe. And I don't know if anybody knows... Anybody know how which, which which one was the biggest tribe? Most people, you it's it, it would be the tribe you'd expect would be the most people. Judah, Judah. very good. Why did you expect Judah? Because it became a nation, and Judah was also the leading tribe. We'll talk about that a little bit more a little later. And the smallest tribe actually was Manasseh, but the total comes down in verse forty-six. That's even a hard number to read. <laughs> How many is that? 603,550. Good job. 603,550. You know that's a good many from starting with 70? <laughs> that, that, I believe, has accomplished the multiplication. Uh, it really shows you God's faithfulness 
faithfulness to his promise. I'll tell you another thing that shows you. You remember why Pharaoh was making it so hard on the Israelites in Egypt? Yeah, he was afraid they'd grow and take over. That's exactly right. Well, now you can see why he thought that. <laughs> they have grown a lot. And that would be enough. You'd think that could be a threat to take over. So it kind of explains his uh, tension about that. But it's just really an amazing answer. And so these are going to be the soldiers, theoretically, that are going to invade the land of Canaan. Now, he does not take a census at this point of the Levites. Why would he not take a census of the Levites at this point? The Levites didn't have a standing military. Because they were the priests. Yes, they were priests and temple servants and so forth, so they were not a part of the soldiers. And in fact, they have a very important job. Now, they were supposed to carry the tabernacle, that's verse 50. And they were also supposed to camp around the tabernacle, this is verse 53, so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. The idea is. The Levites camped right around the tabernacle as sort of a buffer zone, as like a protective boundary. Because if an ordinary Israelite got too close to the tabernacle, guess what happened? Yeah, it was not a pretty sight because God, God's special space had to be respected. You couldn't just barge into God's presence anytime you wanted to. Um, and an ordinary uh, Israelite couldn't go there at all. So when you've got a holy God that's actually living among the people, it creates a danger situation, and that's one of the functions of the Levites is to just camp right there, right around the tabernacle, and that way they protected the people from getting too close to the tabernacle and, and, and uh, getting killed by the Lord. That is basically Numbers chapter 1. Comments or questions? All right, Numbers 2, you know, God loves order and structure. There is not, there's almost nothing that's just sort of haphazard in the book of Numbers. Everything is planned, including where the different tribes camp around the tabernacle. This was not like first come, first serve. You know, pick the place you want. That's kind of what we do with, like, the societies here and where they meet. You know, it's kind of which society captains gets their say first as to what they want. Uh, it doesn't work that way in God's kingdom. He had the places where he wanted the tribes. Now, he did want the tabernacle to be right in the middle because God's presence was in the tabernacle. So God should be right there in the middle of the people. And then they were to be some distance away from the tabernacle, give the Lord his uh, space. Uh, but he tells on each side of the tabernacle which tribes would be camping there. Now, if somebody's really good at math, you know how many tribes there were, and you know how many sides there are on a tabernacle. So how many tribes should need to camp on each side? Three! Boy, you guys are good at math. Twelve divided by four, three. Very good. And that's what you've got. One is the leader tribe, and then two women. So, the, the, does anybody know where they considered the front of the tabernacle to be? The front of the tabernacle always faced a certain direction. Anybody know what direction that was? Yeah. East. That's exactly right. The front always faced east. What, what's special about the east? The rising of the sun. Sunrise. Yeah, I think that's it. So, so the front was always east. No matter where the tabernacle was, the front is east. So, the, like the, the kind of the favorite side, the special side of the tabernacle is the east side. That's what we start with right here. We have the tribes on the east side. The leader tribe was Judah, and with Judah were Issachar and Zebulun. Now, let me say a couple things about those three tribes, particularly Judah. Do you remember uh, Judah was whose son? Who was his father? Israel, other name was Jacob. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. Twelve. And uh, Judah was one of his sons. Actually, basically the tribes were Judah's sons. Not quite. Maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, and Judah, I would say, was the first place tribe. 
Now, Judah, was he the oldest? Who was the oldest? Reuben. So why wasn't Reuben the first place tribe? Uh, that's not the only reason. Didn't he lay with his father's concubine? Yeah, he messed around with his father's concubine and he was demoted. He didn't, uh, he didn't get that position. Now, was Judah the second? Who was the second? Simeon. Simeon. Why didn't Simeon get to be the top tribe? Because he teamed up with Levi and attacked the whole city. Yeah, the Shechemites in Genesis 34. And so the Simeon people and the Levi people got scattered among the whole nation and they were demoted. So was Judah number four? Say yes. Say yes. Yes. Oh, you guys are slow. It's after lunch, isn't it? Yes. All right. So, uh, yeah, Judah was the number four. So he was he was the leader tribe. And God, Jacob even said that. And do you know what really, really famous people came from Judah? Jesus. Jesus, that's the most famous. David. And the second most famous was David, yeah. So that shows you Judah is the leader tribe. Now, who was Judah's mother? Rachel? No. Leah. Leah, very good. That's a very good uh, uh, come back there. Uh, and also, uh, Issachar and Zebulun were the fifth and sixth sons of Leah. So it's all Leah tribes on the east, with Judah as the leader, and then Issachar and Zebulun uh, with them. Then on the south, now, they went clockwise. So if you, like, marched, the east side tribes set out, and then the south side tribes set out and then the west side, and then the north side. So the south side was kind of second place. And who was the leader of the south side tribes? Anybody read down enough to see? Reuben. Reuben, who was the firstborn, so he gets to be the top on the second group. And with him were Simeon and uh, Gad, Reuben and Simeon were the two oldest sons of Leah. Gad was through Leah's servant. So those are the three on the uh, south side. Then the tabernacle in the middle. And then on the west side, do you know, can you see down which uh, tribe was the leader tribe on the west? Which? Ephraim. Yeah. Verse 18. What did you say? Ephraim. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. No. Ephraim. I was trying to come up with the mother, not the son. Yeah, Ephraim. Oh, yeah, you know, I, that was my fault. Okay. Uh, so Ephraim is the leader. Now, which son of Jacob was Ephraim? He was not. He was not. Whose son was he? Joseph. Joseph. See, Joseph got to be like the firstborn in terms of getting a double portion of the inheritance. So both of Joseph's sons were counted as tribes. Joseph's sons were Ephraim and Manasseh. And they both got elevated to tribe status. The one of Jacob's 12 sons, really the two that didn't get tribes, were Joseph, because he got tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the other one was Levi, who wasn't really counted as a tribe because they were spread through all the others. So we've got the three racial descendant tribes on the west side, Ephraim the leader, and then Manasseh and Benjamin. And then on the north side, you have Dan as the leader. He was the oldest of the children of the concubines. And with him, the other concubines, uh, tribes, Asher and Naphtali. And you might notice the, the, the east side tribe was the, uh, tribes were the biggest number. And the north side tribes that bring up the rear are the second largest number. Uh, so that kind of, uh, you got the biggest groups at the beginning and at the end, maybe that's for protection. And so that's what they did. That's how they camped, and that's how they march in those groups of three when they're going to go from one place to another. Comments or questions about that? Do you think there's any? Uh, do you not think it's? Yeah. Do you think it's coincidence, or do you think it's on purpose that God did like Leah, at, since she was the one wife of Jacob? The like that's why they got the east and south. Too. I don't think anything's coincidence. So yeah, I think it's purpose. 
And, and there's just a lot of things you see in that. I think because Judah was the dominant, and then, e, and then, then Reuben was the firstborn, and then Ephraim, when it's all said and done, Ephraim was the second most important tribe. And in fact, do you remember the two spies, the two good spies that went in? Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. Caleb was from which tribe? Anybody know? Ephraim? Nope. <laughs> Good guess then. Good guess. Judah? Judah. Better guess. And which tribe was Joshua from? Now, Ephraim. So the two good spies were from Judah and Ephraim. Isn't that interesting? They were kind of the two dominant ones. So yeah, I think there's a purpose, definitely, with all of this. Anything else on chapter 2? I realize this is a little detailed. But I think it's good for us to know these things. I think they're interesting. Sometimes you have to get into them a little bit to find them interesting. And you know in my class, when you get sleepy, just pop up, stand up, and walk around. I don't care what you do. Uh, it's hard after you've uh, had lunch to stay alert. So I always respect somebody who's willing to get up just so they can pay closer attention. Sometimes it's not that you go to sleep. It's just that it gets, wow, it's hard to concentrate. That, uh, the best thing that I get out of teaching these classes I get to stand up and walk around. So when I get sleepy, I just move around more. <laughs> you can't do that very well, but you can with me, so feel free to do that. Okay, chapter 3, he talks about the Levites. Now, he actually starts with the granddaddy of all the priests, who was the original high priest. Aaron. Aaron. And he had how many sons? Four. Four. And, uh, wow, they were, that was a great thing because they were the original priests, those four sons. However, tragedy struck. What happened? Two died. Two died when? When, yeah. Do you know what day it was when they died? Their first day on the job? It was their first day on the job. The Lord killed half of the priests on the first day on the job. There weren't a lot to begin with. So that was really shocking, and he mentions that here. Verse 4, Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. That means their lineage died out. There's no descendants of Nadab and Abihu. All the priests come then through the other two of the sons of Aaron. Do you know what their names were? Eleazar and Ithamar. Yeah, Eleazar and Ithamar, all the priests come from them. Because um, Nadab and Abihu's line went extinct when they were killed. That really shows you the seriousness of their job, and that God demands obedience. Uh, and it's kind of funny. I mean, you could think as priests they get a little exemption, you know, maybe a little tolerance. There's zero tolerance with God on this, and He sort of made an example out of them. He really showed you got to really treat me with respect. I mean, sometimes when you get used to being, uh, you know role of serving God in any special way. You sort of take it casually. You don't respect God the way you should. Sometimes you'll hear preachers telling jokes about God and things like that or just treating the Lord's word casually. We can't ever do that. We've got to always have great respect and reverence for everything associated with God. And this story will tell that. And he mentions here uh, the census of the Levites and some of the things that the Levites were to do. Now, alright, so you've got Levites and you've got Aaron. What's the relationship between the Levites and the family of Aaron? Aaron's family were Levites. Aaron's family were Levites, but they were not the only Levites. So the Levites in general serve the Lord, they, they work in the tabernacle and all, the family of Aaron Levites were priests. They were special Levites, had a special role. Now, actually, Levi had how many sons? It wasn't 15. <laughs> he had three. Kohath, Ithamar, and Merari. And so we number the Levites by their family. And they have special responsibilities by their families that we see in chapter 3 and 4. Um, now, with the Levites, it wasn't the ones 20 years and old that were numbered here in chapter 3. It was the ones from a month and older. 
And uh, so they number each one of them. The total number ended up being 22,000 Levites from a month old and older uh, of the males here. And uh, they, as I said, they have special responsibilities. There's so much to talk about that I'm not sure how I want to divide this up, actually. Uh, let, let me just tell you a couple things. This is encompassing chapters 3 and 4 together. Okay. They had special rules when it came to carrying the tabernacle. They divided the tabernacle stuff into three parts, and each of the tribes carried a different part. Anybody know anything about that? Each of the, each of the families of Levi carried a different part. Anybody know which family carried what part or anything like that? Do you know, Rebecca? Uh, that's right. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Uh, they were like to clean the stuff. To clean the stuff? To clean. No, not really. Okay. The Kohathites, they carried the holy objects. Like the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, the table of showbread, the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand the utensils and things like that. And that was a really special role because those holy objects were the most holy things in the tabernacle. And uh, they were there was a lot about that. And we'll look at some things about that later on. Uh, but they were the most, that was kind of the most special. The Kohath family carrying those holy objects. Then the Gershon family, they carried the curtains and the covering. You know, basically the tabernacle was like a wooden framework covered by curtains and fabrics and coverings and things like that. And so they carried that. And then the Morari tribe family carried the board. They carried the structure. Now, here's how I think about this. Somebody told me this one time, and this helped me. For whatever reason, I can remember Kohath carries the, the, the special holy furniture like. But I could never remember. Which one does Merari carry and which one does Gershon carry? But then I got, then, then somebody told me, well, think about it. Which gender would you think would carry the curtains and the fabrics and the coverings? That should be the girls, right? For Gershon, the girls. And which gender should carry the boards and the wood and things like that? That ought to be the men, right? For Merari, the men. So that helped me when I thought about it that way. That may be a little device that kind of helps you as well. Now, they actually camped around the tabernacle by their families. Remember I said that the Levites were kind of the, the buffer zone right around the tabernacle, and then these other tribes in threes were around them? Well, actually, we can break that down. It was the, uh, were the priests that were the buffer on the east side, that makes sense, right? The east side is the special side, so the priests are the most important Levites, so they're on that side. Then on the south side, the next more important is the is the uh, Kohathites, the ones that carried the holy objects, and then it's the Gershonites and the Morari uh, family. Uh, so they go around, you know, like that. Uh, okay, uh, let me pause a minute. I'm saying a lot. Do you have a question or comment? Yeah, Jacob. How much of a buffer was three people and their families, really, the priests? Well, yeah, good good point. Not very many, but the number would grow over time. But you're right. That the priest didn't have all that many to start out with. Seems lopsided. Yeah, yeah, it does. Because really, there's a lot fewer priests than there are Levites. I mean, there's like not just three times as many Levites. There's many times as many Levites. Yeah. Good point, yeah. Other thoughts? Uh, now, here's something that I haven't really talked to you about yet, but I need to mention to you. This whole idea of God taking the Levites for themselves, taking the Levites for themselves, himself, fit with the idea of sparing the firstborn in Egypt. Now, remember when God came through and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, right? And what, the, what did he tell the Israelites to do? Put blood on the door, blood of the lamb on the door, and that spared the firstborn of the Israelites. But but since God spared the firstborn Israelites, He said they belong to me. You know, because I spared them, <laughs> so they're mine. But God said rather than just giving every firstborn son to Him, He will just take the tribe of Levi in the place of the firstborn. So He allows a switch. 
Because, you know, I don't know, maybe he thinks you could train him better if you got just one tribe and the firstborn from every family of all the tribes. I don't know why he said that, really. But that's the way he wanted it done. So he said, I'll just allow you to, you know, in the place of the firstborn, we'll take the Levites. But you know what happened? When they did the numbering, well, here's what happens when they did the numbering. The firstborn, there were 22,273. When he numbered the Levites, there were 22,000. So what does that mean? There's 22,273 firstborn. There's 22,000 Levites. What do we got? More firstborn among the Levites. We've got 273 firstborn that there's not a Levite to match. So God deserves all the firstborn. But if he only gets the Levites, what's happening? Yeah, he gets shorted by 273. Well, that's pretty close, isn't it? What's 273 out of 22,000, right? That's not very many. That's not the way God looked at it. <laughs> God wants his full number. So guess what he did to make up for those 273 that he was missing? Had them pay? Yeah, okay. You know, they had to pay a price for those 273. If I'm not mistaken, it was five shekels apiece. Am I right? Yeah. They pay five shekels apiece. And that redeems the firstborn. In other words, for, for every two hundred seven for all the two hundred and seventy-three, they pay five shekels for each one, and that's the firstborn that belonged to God that they're sort of buying back from God. So that's what they did. You know, two hundred and seventy-three is still not close enough when you're dealing with the Lord. Make sense? So in chapter four, now here's another thing that I think is really cool. Alright, now, which which family of Levi did we say carries the uh, holy furniture? So, they've got a problem, though, doing that. You know what the problem is? There's two things they cannot do. Very serious things they cannot do. The family of Kohath cannot touch the holy objects, and they cannot... See, this. See the holy objects. Now there's a bit of a problem if you're trying to carry the holy objects, don't you think? So what what do they do? Cover. They cover who covers them up? Aaron. Yes, Aaron and his sons. Exactly, the priests. The priests went in and they covered all the holy objects. The uh, ark. And I believe the altar of incense, if I'm not mistaken, I may have it wrong, were covered with three coverings apiece. All the other stuff with two coverings. And they, and they actually you put colored coverings, you could tell by the color what you were carrying. And, and they didn't actually touch them because they carried these things with what? Poles. Poles and frameworks that they put poles through. And so they didn't actually have physical contact with the holy objects themselves. God's thought of everything, hasn't he? So that when they have to, you know, take down the tabernacle and move it, first thing that happens, the priests come in and they cover up the holy objects. And then the Kohites come in and move them. And the, the you know, Gershonites take the coverings and the material, the fabrics, and the Merarites take the boards and wooden parts and so forth and they carry it and actually Merari and Gershon would end up going first and they'd set up the tabernacle by the time the Kohathites got there with the holy furniture they'd have the tabernacle set up and they'd put the other put it in there and that a cool way they did it and that's really chapter 3 and 4 I'm just summarizing because there's so much to go through but if you read that now you'll see all that stuff and again, I think it's interesting how much fear and respect you have to have for God. You can't treat Him lightly. Um, it was the Ark of the Table that had three coverings; the others just had two. You know, but it's but you know you if you can't even look at the holy objects without dying, it means you've got to treat God with great respect. We need a lot of respect for everything about God. Okay, uh, a couple of questions on stuff. Uh, through chapter 4. What tribe was Aaron from? What like, section of the Levites? He was a Kohathite. Yes, that's a good question. 
So he was from the most special family. So is that why the most special? Because he was from that family? Or he, or was he from them because they were the most special? I don't really know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't really know. But yeah, it's a good observation because he was from Kohath. Kohath uh, that has, that the priests were a subset of Kohath that was one of the three families of Levi. Yeah. Other questions or comments? That was a good question. Whenever you have the priests in Joshua carrying carrying the ark, yes, uh, is that the priests or the Kohathites? I believe the priests actually carried it, Joshua, didn't they? Well, it says priests, but then you said that the Kohathites, but I didn't know if it Normally was different. Normally the Kohathites, but that was a special deal. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Normally Kohathites did. Yes, Jacob? Once they actually get into Canaan, you don't really hear about this system that much. You only really hear about the priests. How much did the three families really stick to what they were doing? Well, you know why it changes when they went to kick this? Because they stopped moving the tabernacle. They stopped moving the tabernacle, and eventually what happened, they got other work reassigned to them because their tabernacle moving work days were over, especially when the temple was built and they stopped moving at period. Then they were reassigned work mostly musical functions and doorkeeping functions in connection with the work of the temple. You read a lot about that in First Chronicles. So that's a very good point, very good question. Now you guys are thinking, I like that. Up comments or questions? Okay. Alright, uh, well that uh, brings us to another section almost. Chapter 5 and 6 have various laws that are interesting. Again, we're going to have to summarize a lot in this. But in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, they were to cast the unclean people out of the camp, like if they had leprosy or some discharge or something like that. Uh, they, were to, they were to kick them out, and they had to be away from the camp. Now, why would they do that? Why would a leper or somebody having a discharge or somebody who touched a dead body, why would they be cast out of the, the assembly of the Israelites? Anyone else unholy or unpure? Yeah, yes, to some extent. But I think there's even a more important reason. On the practical side, it stops the spread of disease. It does stop the spread of disease, but I don't think that was a reason. What'd you say? Okay. Everybody says that, but I don't agree with that reason. God was within their group, and so if He's so holy, they can't have unclean. They can't be in there. That's exactly. God was present among the people of Israel. You can't have unclean people in the presence of God. It's really, I think, stressing the holiness and the sanctity of God. If God's going to stay with them, they can't let unclean people stay with them. God's not going to lower his standards to accommodate man. Now, in the Old Testament, the uncleanness was physical. But that's just teaching a lesson for us. In the New Testament, the uncleanness is spiritual. You remember like when the Corinthian church had the man living with his stepmother? It's like, cast him out. You can't have the leaven in because we've already sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus. You know, so you can't have wicked, impure people morally among the people of God. Not if God's going to live among us. God demands a holy living space. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, uh, he's not going to let us... Uh, uh, you know, have some kind of uh, um, you know defiled space. So you, know, it, there's a lot of people in the world today who are so tolerant. They hate to draw lines. You know, and we don't want to exclude anyone. We don't want to say anybody's wrong. You know, well, people like that have not really thought seriously about the holiness of God and the standards that He demands. You, we have no business saying, well, it may be pretty impure, but. It no, it's not okay. Remember Nadab and Abihu. That's a good thing to remember when you start thinking, well, maybe it's okay. It's like, maybe it's not either. <laughs> so, uh, then, in 5 to 10, he talks about what you have to do if you hurt somebody. If you, like, like, you know, committed some sort of offense or crime against somebody, and basically you have to confess your sins to that person and, and make some kind of reparation. Like, you have to give them back what you stole, plus one-fifth more, kind of a fine, and things like that. They have, if they're going to live with God, they can't be wronging each other. they got to treat each other right to live with God. And then, weirdest thing, starting in, in verse 11, 
you got a, a marriage, and the, the husband thinks his wife's been cheating on him. Now, maybe he's right, maybe he's not. You know, some husbands think their wife's cheating on them, but they're not, they're just suspicious. Some husbands think their wife's cheating on them, and she is. How did they know whether she was or not? Well, God devised this very unusual test. The man would bring his wife to the priest. This is an involved thing. I'll just summarize some parts of it. But he, at the priest takes some holy water. He takes some dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and misses it with the whole, uh, mixes it with the holy water. And, and basically, he has the woman take an oath and drink this water. Now she takes an oath that she hasn't been with him. But when she drinks this special water, if she's been with somebody, her stomach starts growing. And she can't have children anymore. It messes up her female organs. And if she hasn't been with a man, then she's normal, nothing happens. And she's great. So that's a test whereby they can find out. It doesn't hurt her at all if she's pure. If she's not pure, she's in big trouble. Is this good for the woman if she admitted to it or just if she was hiding it? If she admitted to it, then we know she's guilty and we don't have to apply the test. I bet you anything, I don't know this for sure, but if I was the woman and I was guilty, I was about to have to drink this water, I think if I was guilty, I'd probably just fess up. <laughs> I bet you that's what happened. I don't know for sure, but I, that looks to me like that probably happened, at least if you'd ever seen any other woman go through that ordeal. So that one of the things that you see in that that I think is important is that being faithful in a marriage is no small matter. You know, God intends for us to stay faithful to each other, period. That is a part. God made marriage. And, and when God made Adam and who was that? Eve. Eve. That was not Eve's. That was Eve. It wasn't Eve, Eve and Evelyn. It was Eve. One man, one woman. That's the way God intended it. Period. And he doesn't intend for us to play around about that. Even in the Old Testament, that was a big deal. So that's just a good lesson. Kind of an unusual test. There's several things that are interesting in this. Okay, I'll pause for a moment. Do you have a question or comment about chapter 5? Daniel? I've seen this passage used as someone saying that this makes abortion okay because there was a chance for a child to be born and this would stop any child from being born. How would you counter that using this passage? Well, A... Whatever God does doesn't prove that we can abort. B, making a woman where she can't become pregnant and bear a child is not abortion. It's not wrong to stop the possibility of conceiving. There's no indication this woman is pregnant at this point. She just won't be able to have children from there on out. So that stopping conception is not the same thing as aborting. So I don't think it has any relevance either way. Yeah, good question. Okay. This idea of getting the unclean out of the camp is really cool because in the New Testament, when Jesus comes onto the earth, uh, he almost like reverses the process. When the unclean touch somebody, they become unclean. But then, like especially in Mark chapter five, there's three instances of unclean people, and Jesus specifically mentions them touching them. But because Jesus is so holy and he can't touch unholy things, they become holy, which even brings one girl back from the dead when that happens. So I just think that's cool to seeing the. The idea here and the fulfillment with Jesus in that he's so holy. Same point in Mark chapter 1, Jesus touched the leper. <laughs> he didn't catch it. The leprosy, the leper caught his cleanness. It's amazing. Yeah. Jesus transforming power. Great point. Yeah. Other thought. Okay, chapter 6 is really interesting because this is the Nazarite vow. Now, this is complicated too and, and really intriguing. Basically, what I understand is that if you wanted to like have a special period of special dedication to God, you could take this Nazarite vow for a period of time, you followed special rules, and at the end of it you offered a bunch of sacrifices and went back to being a normal Israelite. And normally it was a voluntary thing for a period of time. 
Now, there are some cases in the Bible of people who were, you know, ordered to be Nazarites as a lifetime thing. One especially we know was supposed to have been a lifetime Nazarite, and that was? Samson. Samson. There's a couple others we suspect were lifetime Nazarites. And those were? Samuel and John the Baptist are possibilities for various reasons. But Samson, it specifically says, was. We also suspect that Paul took a Nazarite valentine or two. Maybe in Acts 18 and Acts 20. Uh, 21, actually. So, um, anyhow, the, the Nazarite vow, you had some special rules, kind of odd rules, you might think. There were three basic rules. A, you could not eat or drink any grape anything. You couldn't eat grapes, couldn't eat, drink grape juice, couldn't eat raisins, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't drink wine, nothing grape, period. And so that's saying you have to abstain from pleasure, from, from something that's joyful. And then secondly, you couldn't put a razor on you, you couldn't cut your hair. You had to give your whole appearance and life over to God. So you, Now you would shave your head at the beginning of the Nazarite vow. Mm -hmm. And you'd shave the head again at the end of it and give the hair to God that was grown during the vow. But during the period of the vow, however long that was, you didn't let a razor touch you. You grew your beard, you grew your hair, etc. Um, and the third thing is, you couldn't touch or come near a dead body. Um, you, you couldn't go near a dead person. And that was true no matter who the dead person was. He says in verse 7, He shall not make himself unclean for his father, for his mother, for his brother, for his sister. Nobody. If they drop dead, he can't, he can't become unclean for them. And so he doesn't know who's going to die, but he's already making a vow. I won't even come near if it's my father or my mother that die while I'm in the vow. Yes? Couldn't he not be near anything dead? I think dead bodies, but that is a question mark. Uh, there are some people who think it means dead animals also. I doubt that, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah. What if someone like died right next to them? I am so glad you asked that question, because that is the very next point he makes. We're right along with him. In verse 9 of number 6, But if a man dies very suddenly beside him, <laughs> just exactly what Luke asked, uh, and he defiles his dedicated head of hair, He's got to shave his head again and shave it again on seventh day. He's got to offer two turtle doves or two young pigeons on the eighth day. And he starts over again with his Nazarite vow. He may be, you know, three months into a four-month vow, starts all over again. <laughs> and he has to go another four months. So that was kind of rough. Better hope nobody dies right next to you. Exactly. How would they have lasted? I don't know. The Bible never says so. I assume the worshiper got to set the time. That's what I assume, but I don't know. At the end of this, wow, they offered a whole batch of sacrifices. Um, in verse 14, for example, a one, uh, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb a year old for, old for a sin offering, one ram for a peace offering, a basket of unleavened cakes, along with the grain offering, the drink offering, and so forth. And they do shave their hair and offer it to God. And so there's a lot of stuff they offer to God. Wow. And then it says, look at verse 21. They have all those sacrifices, and then this is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord according to his separation, in addition to what else he can afford. According to his vow which he takes, he shall do according to the law of his separation. So besides those animals, if he can afford more, he does more. Being a Nazarite, even for this period of time, was like rugged discipleship. This is like a special commitment to God. It really reminds me a lot of being a disciple of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus is a lot like being a Nazarite. You have to just really commit yourself in a really, you know, intense way, I guess, when you turn right. I think reading this, you know, clearly can see something to be really admired, someone who would agree to do this vow. But also, you can see here that when they agree to do this vow, they really have to follow through. They can't just back out and change their mind. Or 
They're going to finish the thing. Yeah, backing out on vows to God is never going to happen. Good point. Other thoughts, questions, comments? Well, chapter 7, the various tribes offer gifts to the Lord to be used by the Levites. This is the second longest chapter in the Bible. Anybody know what the longest one is? Psalm 119. This is the next one, number 7. We're not going to read all this because every, um, every tribe gives the same thing. Very repetitive. But you know, it's kind of like God acknowledging each gift. If, uh, if you and your siblings all get your friends Christmas gift, is it good enough that they say, thanks kids? Or would you like to be thanked individually for what you did? You know, God is recognizing the individual contribution of each tribe. But the thing I mostly want to notice with you is verse 3. When they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen. And God took the carts and the oxen. In verse 7, he gave two carts and four oxen to Gershon. And in verse 8, he gave four carts and eight oxen to Merari. And verse 9, he did not give any to the sons of Kohath, because theirs was the service of the holy objects which they carried on their shoulder. So, two to Gershon, carts. Four to Merari, zero to Kohath. Josh? Go right ahead. Okay. Um, what or why... Well, why did he give Marari the most cars? Because they were the ones carrying all the heavy frames. And exactly! They needed more carts to carry the heavier wooden stuff. And then the Gershonites need half as much carts, two instead of four. Why did he give carts to the Kohathites? Because they weren't supposed to carry the stuff with carts. Where were they supposed to carry it? On their shoulders. Do you remember a time when the Israelites had a problem with that one? Luke? David. Yeah, when he carried the what? The Ark of, the Ark of the Covenant on a ox drawn cart. Wow! I believe David should have read number seven before he did that, don't you think? I guess he didn't really care much about number seven right then. It wasn't even the right tribe carrying, was it? it was um, the wrong tribe, wasn't it? I believe there were Levites involved. I don't know which family. Um. Wonder what gave David the idea to carry the ark on a cart? They sent it back on a cart. Who sent it back on a the cart? The Philistines. The Philistines. Remember when the Philistines captured the ark in battle? <laughs> Believe it or not, in First Samuel chapter four and five, and uh, then the, every town of the Philistines that got the ark started developing this terrible plague, and pretty soon the Philistines were playing with the ark like it was a hot potato, no, I don't want it, you take it, no, we don't want it, you take it, and uh, they sent it back on an ox cart. I guess David thought that was a great idea and tried it instead of listening to number seven. Zachary? Didn't their idol like fall down and break itself? Yes, it did. What was the name of that idol? Dagon. Dagon, very good. You guys have studied a lot, that's cool, exciting. So these are just carts. Carts and oxen. Yeah. Yes. I thought they had something in them. They, oh, they, they give a lot more than that. Oh, okay. <laughs> starting in verse 12 is the full range of offering. This is just the carts and the oxen. And then... So maybe they put the stuff on the carts. They put, yeah, they give them a okay. whole bunch of other stuff. Too. Yeah. But that, they, he kind of sets out the cart and the oxen separately okay. uh, as a special gift. Okay. That's all I'm going to do with chapter 7. Do you have a question or comment about that? Anything through chapter 7? You all are listening patiently. I think this stuff is cool. But I will admit, you have to get into it a while before it seems that cool. It sometimes seems kind of boring. But I think it's neat to see this stuff. So if you don't think it is yet, that's cool. Just keep studying it until you get to where you do really like it. Because the more you learn about it, the more it's like, wow, this is interesting. I think it is. Of course, I have an accounting degree, so who's to say? Uh, chapter 8 you have the lamps and the Levites do you know what they made that lamp stand out of what was different about what they made the lamp stand out of and what they made most of the other furniture out of did they make that out of gold too out of yeah. bronze and then covered it with gold, right? Bronze on the, in the courtyard, but inside the, uh, the tabernacle, was it made of, uh, uh, all the stuff made of gold? It's like plated. 
gold blade over wood. What about the lampstand? Solid gold. Solid gold. Why was the lampstand solid gold but the other stuff wasn't? Because they burned. No. Because there were some things that didn't burn. Like the table. Why not make the table out of solid gold? Yeah. Gold is a uh, softer metal. So probably these bigger objects you couldn't have made them at all. The lampstand was smaller, lighter, and you could. That's what we think the reason is. Because uh, gold is, is not a very uh, solid kind of a metal. Um, and then the Levites, he consecrates the Levites. That's a really fascinating thing. They offer a lot of uh, sacrifices, which is interesting. But man, they do something that I don't know if you'll quite get this, but let me show it to you just a second. You, you, you present the Levites. This is uh, verse 9. Uh, chapter 8, verse 9. You shall present the Levites before the tent of meeting. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel and present the Levites before the Lord. And the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Aaron shall present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel. Now, that's interesting. The Israelites lay their hands on the Levites, and the Levites are presented as a wave offering. So that means the Levites are being like a what? Sacrifice. sacrifice. A sacrifice essentially does what for a man? It becomes the what? The substitute. You put your hands on the animal so that the animal identifies with you and then you kill the animal in your place. They put their hands on the Levites and they made him a wave offering. They gave him over to God and God gave him back. And now the Levites are taken in the place of the Israelites. And then the Levites turn around, and verse 12, they laid their hands on the heads of the bulls and offered them as a sacrifice. So the Levites were substituted for the Israelites, then the bulls were substituted for the Levites. you got the double substitution there. I think that's interesting. Again, that may not be as interesting to you as it is to me. I think it will be if you keep studying it. And he's emphasized the firstborn belong to God, they're God's property, and uh, the service of the Levites. That's chapter 8. Questions or comments about that? Let me make sure what time is this talking about. I'll always get confused. Uh, okay, 245, we've got 10 minutes. Awesome. The yes. wave offering, isn't that the same one where they would use their food, they take the food up? Yeah, we don't exactly the know what they did in the wave offering. But the wave offering does seem to have been, I almost see them as kind of giving it to God, kind of passing it over the altar, here you are, go God, and then he just sort of gives it back. <laughs> and so you wave it to the God, but you don't actually burn the sacrifice or give it to God. It's given back to the worship. Yeah. And this is the 22,000 Levites. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So why did they... 30 and over. Why did they substitute through the Levites, through the bulls, instead of just through the bulls? Well, the Levites take the place of the Israelites. The Israelites need to be dedicated to God, the Levites are, and then the bulls take the place of the Levites. So I think it emphasizes the fact that the Levites are kind of... The, the Israelites ought to be given to God. The Levites are in their place. Other questions or comments? Okay, chapter 9. It's really interesting. You've got the Passover. Now, I want you to look at verse 3. When was the Passover supposed to be uh, celebrated? You have to look at verse 1 and verse 3, actually. When was the Passover supposed to be celebrated? On uh, which month? First uh, which month? First month. 14th day of the first month. Now, the Israelites did not have the option of celebrating it however they felt led. You know, they didn't, uh, if they decided, you know, I think, we'd be, I think we'll celebrate on the 15th day, because the 14th day is our night or something like that. And they didn't do it that way. They didn't have the right to do it that way. God said, 14th day of the first month. But there was a problem. Because if you're going to celebrate the Passover, you have to be clean. Contact with the dead body or other things could make you unclean. So you had some Israelites. Verse 7 uh, there's some men who were unclean. They couldn't observe the Passover. They came to Moses and Aaron and said, Though we are unclean because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering to the Lord at this appointed time among the sons of Israel? They wanted to partake even though they were unclean. 
Now, I think that's cool that they wanted to observe the Passover. Some people say, oh, that's a blessing. We weren't clean. We couldn't have, we didn't have to do it. No, they wanted to. They were, they were frustrated they didn't get to. Can you imagine? Do you feel like that? Do you ever uh, not feel too well and you can't go to church and it's like, ah, I don't have to go to church tonight? Or do you think, man, I wish I felt better. I wish I could convince my parents I felt good enough to go because I miss it. See, that's kind of the idea. They, they wanted to protect the pastor, but they wanted to clean and they couldn't. So they go to Moses and say, why can't we? Well, guess what Moses says? Let me go ask. Yes, with great idea. Moses said, wait now, listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. Don't ever try to answer a question on your own, off the top of your head. Say, let's see, what does the Bible say about that? If you don't know what the Bible says about it, be quiet. Only give God's answer. Don't give your answer. I do that every once in a while. It always burns me because the next verse always proves I'm wrong. So don't do it. I really appreciate Moses in that. And you will never believe what Moses, what God told Moses to do. Now what would you say? If you're unclean on the 14th day of the first month and you can't protect the Passover, what would you say? I think I'd have said, well, you were providentially hindered from partaking this year. Maybe you can partake next year. Or maybe I'd say, well, the Passover is more important than the cleanliness. Being unclean is going to partake of it anyway. God didn't say either one of those things. You know what God did say? Same day next month. Yeah, make up Passover a month later for the people who were unclean and couldn't partake in the first month. That, I would never have thought to do it that way. I'm kind of surprised God did it that way, but then, you know, he surprises me a lot of times. But that's what he wanted. Now, he does emphasize this is only for the people who were really unclean or traveling on the first month. Uh, you don't abuse that. This is not just like, oh, well, if you'd rather partake in the second month, okay. It's only for the people who really couldn't partake in the first month, they can partake in the second month on the same day. That's God's answer. Isn't that cool? Questions or comments? Cameron. Not sure how to word this, but since the Passover had um, a lot of connections to the Lord's Supper, and today we have a tradition to where when in the morning um, the, we should protect the Lord's Supper and some aren't there, they make it up in the evening and they're not together, so it's not partaking together. Is this verse something to say that that would be okay? Or, I don't know, I just don't know how to ask that question. Okay, without trying to reveal where I stand on that question, <laughs> although I'm willing to if you want to talk to me privately, uh, I would rather answer that in principle. I don't think this passage helps you with that question. Here's why I'd say that. Moses couldn't answer it on his own. He had to go to the Lord and find out is should there be a makeup Passover or what should be done? Now, I think what that's saying is we need to find out from the scriptures if God wants there to be a makeup Lord's Supper. And if so, should it be a month later? Or what? Now, when God said, let's have a makeup Lord's uh, Passover a month later, what if they said, you know, a month later isn't really good for me? Can we do it in six weeks? Would that have worked? No. So I think this tells us about the Passover. There was a makeup one a month later. I don't think this passage tells me what God wants to do with the Lord's Supper. Does he want to partake it a month later? Uh, does he want to partake it up in the evening if you weren't with everybody in the morning or whatever? I don't think this passage is relevant. Other than maybe to say we need to find a Bible answer to the question. Uh, but I don't think you can use this answer for that question. So I think this is just kind of indifferent about that. I think you're going to have to decide that on other basis. Okay? Alright. Um, and then the end of chapter 9 is really interesting. It's, if you try to read that, it is very redundant. It keeps saying, follow the cloud, 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 follow the cloud. If the cloud's here, you follow it. If the cloud stops, you follow it. If the cloud goes, you follow it. If you follow the cloud, you follow the cloud. And the point is, you have to follow the cloud. You have to do what God says. Go where he sends you. The cloud will move, they move, the cloud will stop, they stop. And it says that about 20 times. And he's really trying to get that point across. You do what God says. That's what we need to do today. 
Do what God says. Follow the cloud. It's not the crowd. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's chapter uh, 9. Anything you want to say about that? Good. Chapter 10. The trumpets. There were trumpets for everything. There were trumpets to tell the camp to assemble. There were trumpets to tell the leaders to come together. There were trumpets to say, we need to move. There were trumpets to sound an alarm when they were attacked. And there's trumpets for feast days. So there's a lot of reason to use trumpets. There were various ways they blew on trumpets. And there's various numbers of trumpets they used to tell you different things. So you need kind of a key to understanding what kind of trumpet blow and how many means what. But that's what chapter 10, verses 1 to 10 is about. These silver trumpets that Moses makes and what they mean. And then they leave Sinai, starting in verse 11. This is so exciting! They are leaving, and where are they headed? For their promised land! They're going to go and conquer the promised land. Can you ever have Can you imagine how exciting that was? After they stayed in Mount Sinai for more than a year. It's time to go! And so they start marching, and they're going to come up to the promised land, and they're going to conquer the promised land, and they got 603,550 soldiers to conquer the promised land, and they got the Lord's presence with them, and this is going to be really exciting. Okay, comments or questions on any of that? All right, I will stop there with this. Let me say a couple things to you, and then I'll let you go. Great attention. I do understand this is a little tedious. Now, the good news is the next bunch of chapters are historical narrative. So there are things that we tend to enjoy. Uh, but I suspect you learned some things that you hadn't thought about, even if it was a little harder to listen to. So I'm glad you did. appreciate you being here. I love your attention. love your attitude of eagerness to learn. That is awesome. Remember what you're here for. I love the theme this year. Be a Barnabas. You be an encourager this week. If you can be, be a spiritual encourager. Reach out to each other. It's amazing. I see, I've already seen in one day what I interpret as some people's hearts changing and softening and being more receptive and more eager for spiritual things. After one day here, this is a wonderful time to reach out to people and help them grow spiritually. If you can do that, get courage and really push to talk and encourage people. Thank you for listening. You know where you go now. You go to your Bible class.